welcome to the Soho Theatre on April the 15th, 2012, for No Pressure to Be Funny, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel, and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. As you may be aware, James O'Brien is away in Indonesia and Burma this week, making the world a better place, while David Cameron is holidaying with his family in Thailand. We think we've got this the right way round, but either way, they'll both get home to find Boris Johnson has been bad-mouthing them. In the meantime, we are delighted to welcome our guest presenter for this week's show. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Talk Sports, Mr. Matt Ford. Good evening, hello everyone. In Syria, President Assad says he's respecting Kofi Annan's ceasefire. At least that's what we think, he said. It's hard to be sure over the sound of the explosions. In fairness, the Syrian government say they're only shelling Homs to secure the support of the international community by turning it into a Formula One circuit. As we all know, North Korea's new missile crashed on Friday. Its top scientists are now hard at work assessing the cause of the failure while suspended by their testicles from a prison cell ceiling. In a speech in Indonesia, David Cameron urged Muslims to respect the human rights of Christians and then offered them some weapons to do it with. Nearer to home, George Galloway not only won the Bradford by-election, he also married his fourth wife almost 40 years his junior, apparently before divorcing his third wife, four months after she gave birth to their second child. His party's called Respect, by the way. (laughs) The Tory party furthered its claims not to be the party of the rich this month by taking away the 50% tax rate and putting a tax on pasties. As Cameron rides around on a borrowed pony while forgetting how many houses he owns... It seems clear that one of the main aims of this government is to increase the jobless totals by making comedians redundant. The Big Society initiative is to be launched for the fifth time next week, meaning it's now had more lineups than the Sugar Babes and still only possesses half the common sense of Atomic Kitten. (laughs) Sorry if these references feel a bit passé in 2012, but when you're talking about the Big Society initiative, that feels entirely appropriate somehow. And finally, Trenton Oldfield, an anti-elitism protester from Australia, interrupted the boat race last week. The Telegraph made much of Oldfield's privately educated background. The Mail brilliantly used it as an opportunity to attack the LSE, and The Guardian chose to point out the more classless elements of modern boat race crews. The Sun went with man overawed. Oxford rower Alex Woods collapsed at the end of the race, not out of exhaustion, but because someone showed him how much he owed in tuition fees. Now it's time to welcome our musical guest, a no-pressure regular. Please welcome Mr. James Sherwood. Uh, This song, which I've uh, finished, is um, one of of my more focused numbers. Uh, It's called The Government. We're told it's a coincidence that every time this government developed plans to sort the country out, the needy get it in the neck, but people higher in the pecking order get much less to fret about. I understand a thinking which can lead you to enjoy the rich. They've got loads of really nice stuff. But personally, I am more confused why you would hate the poor. Don't you think they've suffered enough? When the government have a new idea, the vulnerable have cause to fear. So what is it about the weak that gives them such a fit of pique? 
Maybe in his childhood, little David Cameron met a poor person who bit him on the knee. He's been in therapy since 1983. Now when he visits an estate, they crush a Valium in some cake and a sedative is hidden in his tea. George Osborne suffered all so sad to tell. Some merciless librarians made his life a living hell until one day he swore to exterminate their breed. And to this very day, it still hurts poor George to read. Andrew Lansley has a thing about the sick. Since some Lothario with polio limped off with his wife, he wasn't all that pleased, you know, and so he spends his life assuming every patient's a philandering prick. And that's not all. There was another sad event when some one-parent families and those with disabilities and couples who have got no kids and all the country's charities and people who are not married yet and half the universities and would-be undergraduates and people who buy stuff at Greg's and pensioners and females and people who send emails all gathered in an unforgiving mob and said something untoward about dear old Francis Maud. Well... They've really only got themselves to blame. If they they don't want to be targeted, why start this vicious game? So next time the government pick up on the needy, don't forget that at the heart of it, it's the needy that started it. And there's countless other stories, strange and sinister, about oppressed groups terrorising a defenceless minister. It's really just the thin end of the wedge. Eric Pickles is some weird thing about a childhood sledge. Of course, I've really got no evidence for this. That the weak have made a plaything of the leaders of our nation, but it suddenly occurs to me, perhaps, that there may be a rather more straightforward explanation. And the simpler reason was they victimised the needy because... Quite authentic, honest to goodness, bona fide camps. They're quite authentic, honest to goodness, bona fide camps. They warrant this description on a number of different fronts. They're quite authentic, honest to goodness, bona fide camps. I've tried to explain it another way. That it's just their political ideology. But this particular analysis uncovers a more meaningful psychology. They're independently verified 100% cunts. They're independently verified 100% cunts. They're Michael Goes, the Nick Legs, and of course the Jeremy Hunt. They're independently verified 100% cunts. And it gives me no pleasure to say it that our leaders basically abhor us. And it gives you no pleasure either if you decide to join in the chorus. Cast iron, 24 carat, common or garden. There, cast iron, come to garden, common or garden. It's your fault if you voted for them, even if only once. There, cast iron, 24 carat, common or garden, 100%. Quite authentic, honest to goodness, bona fide, cunts. Wow. Um, now it's time to introduce uh, our panel. Our first panellist is a comedian, actress and broadcaster who's not only performed as herself, but also as a Ant, the circuit's only Ant comedian, 
as Jason the War Donkey, as King Charles II, and as the wife of Lionel Blair. So if anyone is likely to see things from a wider perspective, it's going to be her. Please welcome Bridget Christie. those things. I sound like a nutter, but I'm not. You're in good company, by the sounds of things. Um, our second guest is the economics editor of Newsnight and the award-winning author of Why It's All Kicking Off Everywhere. It's an in-depth look at the recent global unrest, as opposed to a critique of Jeremy Paxman's interviewing technique. Please welcome Paul Mason. Our final guest is a no-pressure regular. In fact, he lists it in large capital letters on his resume amongst the small change of appearances on the news quiz, QI, have I got news for you, etc., etc., etc. As a writer on series as diverse as Not the Nine O'Clock News, Drop the Dead Donkey and Outnumbered, in fact, the only thing bigger than no pressure for him is his commitment to play Dr. Elephant, the dentist in Pepper Pig, which is completely understandable. Please welcome Andy Hamilton. Now, as regulars will know, the panel begins with the devil's advocate, where we take a somewhat contrary position on a story of the day. With the motion that the devil's advocate believes we are really lucky with our mayoral candidates, it's Alistair Barry. The devil's advocate believes that we are really lucky with our mayoral candidates. I think it's only fair to start by pointing out that we had one of the candidates, a Mr Kay Livingston, on our Christmas show, and he laughed at a couple of my jokes, so I'll obviously be voting for him. (laughs) Having taken note of this admirable vote-winning tactic, Ken travelled to the other end of the emotional spectrum this week by crying at a video of his supporters saying they supported him. (laughs) Which is odd, as he must have known they supported him, because A, they're his supporters, and B, he had already seen the film. (laughs) That the Daily Telegraph then revealed the video was put together by a PR company was almost as shocking as the totally baseless revelation that the Telegraph might have had an ulterior motive in their reporting of the story. (laughs) Which brings us to Boris Johnson, of whom I've not had the pleasure in any sense. The man who greeted his election as mayor with the words, ''Thank you, Mr Mayor,'' before stumbling on his way to the podium to make his acceptance speech, has had to tone down his buffoonish tendencies in recent years, partly because they were clearly an act, and partly because he was, well, you know, Mayor of London. (laughs) The devil's advocate is hardly the place for rampant electioneering, but do we really want another term from a man who has had 111 meetings with bankers against 73 meetings with the Metropolitan Police since 2008? Those figures, incidentally, come from The Guardian, which I think we can all agree is almost telegraph-like in its independence, as evidenced by the headline, Why You Have to Vote for Ken. (laughs) Speaking of the Met brings us to Brian Paddock, whose major contribution so far has been threatening to return to his policing roots by arresting Boris and Ken for brawling in a lift. He He wouldn't get involved, of course, as this could seriously endanger his designer glasses, which seem to be getting more expensive by the minute. And, of course, also, he's a Lib Dem, and they're not allowed to get involved in anything. (laughs) Jenny Jones, the Green candidate, urged everyone at the mayoral debate to just be a bit nicer to each other, which probably tells you all you need to know about the Greens, both good and bad, whilst one of my favourites is the UKIP candidate, Lawrence Webb, who admitted he couldn't deliver any of his electoral pledges, but this was okay 
because neither could anyone else. <laughs> These policies, incidentally, included reducing VAT on beer and cider to 5%, introducing smoking rooms in pubs, and a 25p tax on foreigners to pay for the upkeep of Big Ben. So out to lunch is this man that not even UKIP wanted to hang on to him, and he is now running under the Fresh Choice for London banner. Now there's a novel idea. As is this. The BNP candidate. One Carlos Cortiglia. A Uruguayan of Spanish and Italian descent. I know, this truly beggars belief. One wonders at his policies, not to mention their implementation. I imagine that he has to start by shouting racist abuse at himself. <laughs> twice, to make sure he fucking understands. <laughs> before then beating himself up and having himself deported. We really have come to something when the BNP are now so inept they can't even do racism properly. <laughs> This may indeed be something of a badge of honour for the entire election campaign and another reason I think we can all agree we really are terribly lucky with our choice of mayoral candidates. Andy Hamilton, are elected mayors a good idea? I, d I don't know. Um, I... No, I don't think they are. Because I think, I think what they invite are those kind of showman politicians you know and i think uh, i think ultimately they're they're a bad idea i think they i just think they just invite sort of you know the kind of people we've got standing in london they do but but then i'm i'm wondering if it would make people feel that there's someone um, rather than central government sort of being in control of everything, whether they feel that they might have somebody that they can... Well, they think someone's rooting for them a bit. I think, I think they, yeah, but you see, I'd, maybe. I've never felt a connection, if I'm honest. <laughs> I mean, I used, to, I used to like... I loved Ken Livingstone when he was, like, the anti-Thatcher, you know, in the, you know when he was, uh, you know, trying to fair, fair policy and everything. And, you know, I, I've worked with him a couple of times and, 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 and quite liked him, got on quite well with him. But I saw... The crying thing. Yeah, no, and, I, no and the crying thing. And suddenly was I so just bad. thought, well, there's only two possibilities. One is that he's faking it, in which case it's a very cynical ploy. Or the second thing is that he's a horribly dangerous sentimentalist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we certainly don't want him. Um, I just thought Ed Meliband missed a great opportunity because, you know, Ken broke down a bit and, and Ed sort of consoled him. I think. The whole nation, he would have won millions of votes if he just slapped him around the face. <laughs> and said, For fuck's sake, pull yourself together. You saw it this morning. Well, slapped him and said, calm down, dear. Yeah. It's just a film. I mean, in, the, in the news, we have this, um, this test called the JD's Weatherspo JD Weatherspoons test, which is, I mean, we have to spend a lot of time during the day trying to find ordinary people when you're doing it on a deadline. And uh, when you go to a place like Nuneaton, uh, the only place you can find anybody is J.D. Weatherspoons uh, at lunchtime. And, and, and as they'll tell you, no, this is a benefit office with a barmaid. That's what they'll tell you. <laughs> nope. 
So, so our test is: Can you imagine this bloke walking into JD Witherspoon's in a suit and not getting decked? And actually, um, a lot of the politicians—that's quite hard to imagine. Yeah. But I actually think with Ken and Boris, mm. they could both pass the test. They are real people, and I think I, I support the motion. But what's, yeah, what's, the, the, the what's the problem with having personality politicians? Why is well, that necessarily seen as a bad thing? I tell you the other reason why I'm prejudiced against them is the very first person I ever heard advocating them was Geoffrey Archer. In 1979, I went to plug a book. I'd written a book about all the, a comic book about all the secret policies Mrs. Thatcher was going to introduce. Uh, very, a lot of them came true. But, um, <laughs> and I was shown into the start of the week at Green Room, and this extraordinary creature was sitting there. Uh, and I didn't know, I didn't know Geoffrey Archer was. And he would say, what we need in this country is we need mayors, like American mayors. You know, if you're mayor of Chicago, you learn how to wield power, and then, and then you go on, you become president. You see, we, we, we vote for prime ministers, but they've got no experience of wielding power. And this was, you know, very prophetic, because Archer, well, he would have won, wouldn't he? He would, be, he would have been our mayor if he hadn't <coughs> been done for perjury. He was way ahead of Ken in the polls. Um, I mean, we've seen an example of the power this, this week, haven't we? I mean, you know, what, would it, what was that, head, that advert that was going to be on the, on bus. the buses? Yeah. Um, some people are, you know, bigoted, crazy, right-wing Christians, get over it. And Ken and Boris vetoed it. I mean, I should declare an interest here. I, I worked for the elector mayor of Stoke-on-Trent, uh, the only city to have had the elector mayor model and then have a referendum to get rid of it. Right. Um, <laughs> just a couple of years ago, I was the political advisor in the final 18 months, uh, and it was nothing to do with me. Um, but it was an incredible uh, experience in local democracy. In Stoke-on-Trent, you had, as you have in many cities, and Stoke-on-Trent, actually, population-wise, is around 250,000 in population. It's quite a big city uh, outside of London. And what you had there was very low turnout in local elections, which you get if it's not on general election day. You could have someone running that city, because all you need is one councillor to get enough support amongst their backbenchers. Yeah. You could have people elected on maybe three to 400 votes who would then become leader of the party, who are then in control of a city. Now that, to me, doesn't feel like democracy. I think most people would struggle to name their local councillor, yeah. let alone their local council leader, at least in elected mayoral models. Everyone knows who's running the city. Everyone ends up hating them, in my experience. Mm -hmm particularly in the Stoke experience, unfortunately. <laughs> but actually, people knew that Mark Meredith, the guy I worked for, was in charge, and that gave him a certain mandate. And it gave him a mandate to be measured against, which ultimately, at the end, you, you could argue was, was failing. But for me, I didn't witness the sort of personality politicians. You had people who were trying to reinvigorate local government. You know, local government, most councils are tired, knackered places where politics goes to die. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it not worrying that all these Labour MPs are queuing up to become Mayor of Birmingham? I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. is it, I mean you, what do you want to be? Uh, Secretary yeah. of State for Employment in two years' time or Mayor of Birmingham? Does it not, is, it, is it not a little subliminal signal wow. that these Labour MPs are giving you that they're not that convinced that they're going to be but, Secretary of State? But if you're an ambitious politician, yeah. being a mayor of a big city is the perfect Absolutely. base because yeah. you can portray yourself as the maverick. You can portray yourself as the man who... who I mean, Boris is circulating this story, you may have heard it about, he went in to negotiate with David Cameron for the budget for London, and he could see that David Cameron had a figure written mm. on a piece of paper, and Boris snatched it off him, 
and they had a big wrestling match. <laughs> and apparently Osborne piled it. This is true. I'm not, this is this is the story. And the, the version Boris's version is that he won the wrestling match. <laughs> and the David Cameron version is that no, I haven't managed to hang on to the piece of paper. But that's sort of how Boris sees himself, I think. Because that's a great you know, it's a story everyone goes, Oh Boris, he's you know, he didn't take any shit from anybody, he's sticking up for London. And I think that's the danger, is you'll attract really dangerous careerist politicians into the big prestigious ones. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Nick Revel. Yeah, thanks. I, um, I find it these days, uh, with the, the constant information overload that we're subjected to 24 hours a day, it's really hard to, uh, to filter out the crap and, and, and keep across what's, what's really important. And, and that's why... I'm less cynical than I used to be about charity campaigns led by movie stars. Uh, it's not the fault of Angelina Jolie or George Clooney that humans pay more attention to people who happen to be sexy and famous, and I say good for them for being politically active. But I can't help wondering that if Clooney or Jolie were campaigning in favour of female circumcision or the Assad regime in Syria, they'd still get just as much popular support. <laughs> doesn't seem like a nice thing at all, but George must know what he's doing. Look at the jawline on that guy. And that's why right now I need to slag off pandas. Okay, and I know it's, uh, it feels really uncomfortable just saying it out loud because everybody loves the panda. They're cuddly and they're cute and furry and lovely to look at. But I've got to tell you right now, the panda is an evil creature. It's malicious, parasitic, and quite possibly an active enemy of human rights. The only way we can justify protecting the panda is by getting wise to its repellent, decadent, selfish lifestyle. Here we go. Originally, the panda was a carnivore. Then it made an active evolutionary choice to become a vegetarian. No doubt out of noble ethical motives... <laughs> by evolving a partial thumb which is perfectly adapted to stripping bamboo. Okay. The only good thing you can say about this is that it disproves the theory of intelligent design because the panda's evolution is stupid. <laughs> Here's why. Bamboo is such a useless food, the panda has to chew bamboo all day just to get enough energy into its jaw muscles to be able to chew bamboo all day. Any excess energy that it might get is taken up with shitting. Because there is a lot of fibre in bamboo, and a panda has to shit at least 40 times a day. Occasionally, as we know, very occasionally, the panda breeds. Presumably, this is when it gets the odd extra energy surge from eating some defective rodent which is too slow, physically, mentally, and genetically, to escape the clutches of a pseudo-vegetarian that spends most of its life sitting in its own shit, chewing bamboo, and looking cute. The panda doesn't even have the moral consistency to stick to its vegetarian principles. <laughs> When the female gives birth, the first thing a male panda do is leave. But in a cute way. <laughs> Normally, a female panda has one cub in a litter. If it has two, the first thing the female does is kill one of the cubs because looking after two would be too much of a hassle. I mean, what I'm saying is, if the panda was human, even Haringey Social Services would spot them as a bad lot. Okay, human rights. 
for what, 40 years, successive Western governments have tried to get China to improve its human rights records, and what happens? They're talking to whatever the Chinese Politburo might be, uh, Chairman Mao, Deng Xiaoping, whoever it is, you must, you must give your people more freedom. But wait, what is that cuddly furry creature behind you? It is a panda. Oh, can I stroke him? He's so cute. Well... If you shut up about human rights, <laughs> you may take one home for only one million dollars a year. It's a deal. So, the panda, a child-murdering, indolent enemy of democracy, but cute, which is why we have made it the poster boy of the World Wildlife Fund. The panda, a warning from natural history. Thank you. Oh, and apropos of nothing, could someone please tell the BBC that a ship sinking a hundred years ago is not fucking news? <laughs> North Korea um, cocked up their missile launch. Uh, North Korea rightly criticised, I think, for spending money on nuclear missiles rather than the well-being of its people, while we in the UK can afford the £25 billion spent on Trident because the economy is in such a strong uh, condition. Um, Bridget, are we, are we right uh, to be suspicious of of North Korea and their intentions? Of course. Actually, a very interesting fact is that my husband actually really looks like Kim Jong-il. Ooh. I just thought you might like to know. And also Ratko Mladic. But anyway, aside from that, which um, is... Uh, I'm There's more no, no danger of him getting arrested then, is there? <laughs> <laughs> no. Is it hypocritical, so, though, for, for us here in Britain and you know, the West to own nuclear weapons ourselves and then say that certain other countries can't own them? I mean, I always think North Korea is like a sort of Asian version of... It's like the Asian remake of Doctor Strangelove now. You know, and I'm watching the magnificently main, named uh, Damien Grammaticus <laughs> reporting from... Oh, I think he used to be the editor of the Hogwarts Gazette. Or something. <laughs> so you should get a name like Damien Grammaticus because that's a, that's a showbiz name. But I watched his report from uh, the rocket launch prior, prior to it taking off. And I thought it didn't bode well when he said, I'm standing here, here's the rocket, which was sort of framed in what looked like wooden scaffolding. <laughs> and then he said, and then, rather unusually, here, uh, there's a cage full of pheasants. Was it pheasants? Yes, it was pheasants, wasn't it? it was a, there was a cage, this sort of enclosure full of pheasants, next to where the rocket was going to take off. They were going to be incinerated. And I just thought... I remember thinking you would not want to be a North Korean astronaut. If they ever get as far as a space program, you know, you would not want to be the North Korean astronaut. There's your capsule. There's the money where you put the coins in. There's your steering wheel. The window sticks, but you can get it down if it's a bit off. And I think the problem is, although it is, it's that mix of tyranny, incompetence and nuclear missiles, yeah. that is really frightening. That's really frightening. I think that's the most frightening thing because they're a cult. And cults, you know, usually, historically, end in acts of suicide. Mm. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the, the really worrying thing. I mean, at least with Iran, you can sense a kind of strategy in yeah. what the Iranians are doing. We can't read North Korea at all. We know nothing about Kim Jong-un at all. And right. we know nothing about what goes on inside the country. But today, he has actually made a speech. He's made I've got it here. Mm -hmm. He's made a... The, the, they usually don't deign to make speeches. They just stand there looking like this. Okay, but now he's made, and the black hair dye drips down their head. Um, and they, he's made this speech, and what he said was as follows, following the, the aborted 
uh, rocket launch that happened four hours too early, so no journalists saw it, and it fell over within seconds of taking off. Superiority in military technology is no longer the monopoly of the imperialists, and the era of our enemies using atom bombs to threaten and blackmail us is over forever. Uh, we must strengthen our military in every possible way and accomplish the goal of building this powerful and prosperous socialist state. And then he said to his army, pointing at them, let us move to, on towards the final victory. And I was just reading that, because we read a lot of um, draft speeches from people, because they often send them out uh, under embargo. Uh, I don't think Kim Jong-il bothered to. Uh, but um, I just wondered where the line, but our rocket fell over. <laughs> uh, was taken out. But I don't understand yeah. this. The Russians and the Chinese and the Americans apparently all ra are all racing to find the debris. Well, the real problem is the real problem is when the Iran, the Iranians, okay, the Iranians who are gearing up to attack the Americans and we're all very frightened of them. All their rockets are North Korean. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, you know when this actually kicks off, I wouldn't be surprised to see it very quickly. What sort uh, of debris are they going to... It's probably just going to be a packet of Mentos and some Diet Coke. <laughs> but what would you learn? Normally, normally the other lot's missiles crash. You go and you think, right, let's see what missile technology... <laughs> Quick, let's go get the debris because we can study it. You don't need to study the <laughs> missile technology because you know it doesn't work. So. <laughs> Sorry, Andy, what, I can't get it out of my... What were the pheasants for? It wasn't explained. He oh, said... Was it, was he, it he to, said, to somebody carry made a mistake. He said that it's the workers and peasants... <laughs> it was. I, I can only presume that somebody there was a little farm or something next to the next to the launch site. But that's what. It, and he said, I, I, "I see this isn't usual." Um, I mean, what do we do about North Korea as a government? Um, Syria, Iran, Zimbabwe, North Korea, um, are all supported by China. And what do we? We're all really horrible to Zimbabwe, North Korea, Syria, and Iran. But we'd love China for some <laughs> reason. And um, I think that's the root of the problem. Yeah. And actually, it'll probably be solved not by us, because if this all this boshi lie stuff, this uh, third most powerful man whose wife turns out to be now on uh, charges of cyanide poisoning, and a Western businessman who went to Harrow and also worked for a NGO that had links with MI6. Um, if that blows up badly, as you might suspect it might do, um, and the Chinese people wonder why she was running a £126 million a year um, business empire based in America, maybe the Chinese will sort it all out for us. Mm. Because if they just decide they've had enough of the current regime, all these other little regimes are gone. Is that another shift in, in the power from, from west to east? Is that the new frontier? I don't think there is a shift from power from west to east. I think there's a shift. There is, but the more important shift is a shift from power from governments to people. And the communication stuff and the social media and the tweeting and podcasting and all the rest of it, I think, is relentless. And it's going to eat China long before mm -hmm. they realise. Like our you know, English politicians, what is Twitter? You know, the, the Chinese have got the same, probably same type of intonation for the same phrase it's going to eat their lunch long before they realise it's coming for them. Now there's uh, another crisis in the Eurozone this week uh, something that genuinely did shock uh, George Osborne apparently but Paul Mason uh, a man who knows the two about these things his book uh, Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere is out in all good bookshops and available online um, the financial jargon of uh, the Eurozone, of, of bailouts of banks, of 
leverages is very hard, I think, for most of us to understand. Paul, you've got 20 minutes. <laughs> Matt, can I read something out just before? Go on. I read this in the Telegraph today. Right. The Eurozone has deeply entrenched economic, financial and political problems. No one and nothing can change that fundamental truth. And then I stopped reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's true, really. I mean, th- what, what happened is that... Um, OK, so you're in Greece... And there's been a civil war in 1947. And before that, they, there was, a, there was a, uh, an uprising against the Nazis. And um, some Greeks support the Nazis. And some Greeks supported the right wing in the civil war. So you get to 1973, and they overthrow the dictatorship, and then you finally get democracy. And then they join the euro. And my profound economic insight into the euro's role in Greece is this. If your granddad killed my granddad or tortured him, it doesn't half help forget it if we've both got an SUV. <laughs> and, um, and, and if you go through Greece, then there's all, all these places that have got Prada shops and SUV-type stores that, didn't, that they don't have them, like the equivalent of, of, of you know, the equivalent of, of Nuneaton, um, would, be, would, be, would be replete with all these kind of shops. So what the Euro did is it allowed a lot of Southern Europe, so Spain, you know, same basic scenario, Portugal, same basic scenario, Italy, run by fascists for you know, 40 years, calling themselves Christian Democrats, um, after the war, um, you know, it's same basic scenario, basically it, the, the euro paid for the illusion that, it was, that, that there was a future without all this enmity and disaster and then the slight problem came about that when Lehman Brothers went bust and tanked the entire global banking system we then found that actually the worst banks uh, in the world were not these rip roaring high risk you know big bald you know kind of pinstrap no it was the germ is a kind of belgian dentist type person sitting there in his little corner his little glasses um, who had uh, in fact taken the biggest amount of risk and was in ter- in banking terms the most broke and then you got governments that were also broke and then there's not enough growth because of growth of the zero growth across the eurozone so they can't pay the debt and so it spirals out of control greece is you know kind of in pole position and it's much further down the route and then the whole <laughs> the whole summit thing uh i was at a summit where somebody came out of a room and said that that Sarkozy had just shouted into the face of the Greek, grabbed the Greek Prime Minister lights and shouted into his face like that. So why did they get so het up with, with that, like that? Because really, effectively, there's no money and um, there's not enough growth. And with no growth and no money, they're just on this death spiral. And uh, that's the explanation. I don't need 20 minutes, really. <laughs> Can Britain justify bailing out Eurozone countries anymore? We're not really. We're not really bailing them out. I'll tell you who's bailing them out is that the, the, the US central banks bailed everybody out. Because what happened in December, when there was this deep shit moment where everybody's rushing around saying, you know, we are, it's another crisis, it's another crisis. And we were, were really worried about it, is that the European Central Bank and Mervyn King here and the Americans just turned the taps on. We are mainlining now mm-hmm. on cash. We really are. And, but the, it's, it's great. It's like being a pre, in pre-med. You know, it, it's, it, you can't feel anything. It's great. Uh, you float along. You make all kinds of strange comments. Uh, <laughs> That's where we are, but, but this could last for 18 months to two years. I'm not worried about at the moment. Uh, I'm, we're in pre-med because um, that money is called the LTRO, the long-term refinancing operation, um, is what is keeping everything afloat. The problem is when we get to the end of it, 
but don't so so if you one of these people what, who what's going to happen at the end of well at the end of it they're going to have to work out how to pay back a, a trillion dollars so how long will they keep putting it off Oh, forever. I mean, that's the plan. The plan, if you haven't worked it out, the plan is keep putting everything off forever. It's called extend and pretend. There might be some people. <laughs> no, seriously, it's a strategy. There might be people in this audience who might be in some way related to property, because I know a lot of people in Soho are a bit into you know, the odd property deal, and, um, followed by a fire. And, um, and, uh, and if you are, you will know all about extend and pretend, because extend and pretend is what happened in the property market, where all the banks have lent on, on commercial property, shops and theatres or whatever. And, uh, and, and if they recognised the fact that all these shops and theatres and, and bistros and shopping centres were worth zero, all the banks in Britain would go bust tomorrow. So what you do is you extend the loan and pretend that you are getting money from it, but you aren't. And so the world strategy is really the same, extend and pretend. In terms of the future of the euro, I mean, is, is this the end of the currency? No, 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 no. I mean, look, as soon as the sort of, uh, you know, as I call it, the SUV granddad thing uh, is sorted um, in southern Europe, if Greece leaves, euro get, if you've got any euros, don't worry. If Greece leaves, it's a stronger currency. Yeah. If Portugal leaves, Ireland leaves, it's a stronger currency. Um, if Italy should leave, it's a big story. Uh, we were all worried whether France might leave. I don't think France will, but France French banking system is really not in a great state. It's, 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 it's supported by the state. But if you got a North European euro, I mean, it'd be pointless not to join it. I mean, it'd be, it's, it'd be like somebody sort of laying out the red carpet saying, come into, you know, here's free membership to the Groucho Club. It's a sort of, you know, uh, it, it'd be pointless not to be in it. But once they've excluded all the people who don't pay taxes and haven't got a growth model and, you know, uh, you know every single one of them's got organised crime at the very centre of its politics. We all know this in Italy. We know it's, it's the same in Greece, it turns out. It's probably roughly the same in Spain. There's all kinds of dodgy, weird stuff going on. Just get rid of dodgy countries and the euro's going to be a great currency, I think. We'll have to rename it if it's a northern euro. The toy A neuro. Yeah. <laughs> and what sort of time frame would that happen in Paul? Well, I think it's going to be long, unfortunately. I think we're going to have uh, numerous bad events, <laughs> sadly. I mean, I, I mean, not bankruptcy. I mean, the Spanish banking system probably doesn't look so great. Ireland's see, Ireland, everybody thinks, ah, oh, the Irish, they've done really well. They've taken it on the chin, you know, they've taken it on the chin. Um, you know, the crisis isn't resolved there. It's not resolved in Spain. Italy is ruled by as, as a sort of a fiefdom of Brussels by this guy who's never been elected. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got Greece. See, the nightmare scenario is the Greeks vote for extremist parties in May, and, um, and then the government doesn't like it, and so somebody does another sort of slightly harder version of this constitutional coup we've had with already, you know, the Brussels appointed government. At this point, a lot of people in Europe start getting very pissed off because the youth have got, you know, 45% unemployment. And they're thinking, hold on a minute, I can't even vote for a government that says it's gonna, says it's gonna do something about it. Mm -hmm. So you, one worries a little bit about the, the social, uh, that's why, you know, in my book, I'm not really writing about economics, I'm writing about why it's kicking off everywhere because, you know, it, there's extreme enmity now on the streets of those countries. And Barcelona, I mean, my mate from Barcelona said to me, you know, lots of banks have been trashed by anarchists in Barcelona. I mean, I know there's a lot of anarchists in Barcelona, but I didn't realize that a lot, a lot of banks have started being trashed. So I think this could be the year where that all goes quite bad. Um, 
So I don't know whether that's supposed to be funny. But um, <laughs> I don't know where you turned up to be, have somebody tell you uh, funny stuff about Europe. There should be a ladybird book. Of the, could you do that, Paul? I could, yeah. The ladybird book of... We should do. Uh, it's I'm not, it's really not that difficult. It, it, it's the same as this, you know, it's this. If you, if you, if you haven't got enough money at the end of the week to buy anything, you have to borrow stuff. And at a certain point, somebody who's lending you has to decide whether you're going to ever pay it back. And that's the dynamics that we're dealing with with these countries. And um, that's page two of the Ladybird book. Probably have a picture of a man with a what euro. Would the front picture. Be the front picture. I don't know. Actually, it would be. <laughs> it could be a Greek riot policeman. That would be quite <laughs> funny, wouldn't it? Um, with his, you know, pointing his tear gas and going at you. Uh, or an anarchist, or a member of the Black Bloc. The Black Bloc go to five, and the Black Bloc go to Syntagma Square. Uh, well, we're we're coming to the end of the show uh, now, folks, and uh, I leave you with. Uh, with news that Reliance, the firm hired by the Home Office to deport illegal immigrants, admits its guards lack respect for minorities and women, but also said in their defence that's how they got the job. <laughs> We're sorry to have to announce that President Robert Mugabe, who's been suffering from cancer for some time, appears to have recovered. <laughs> and James Murdoch admits that he wrote that resignation letter but cannot recall reading it. Thank you for coming to No Pressure To Be Funny. I'm Matt Ford. This has been No Pressure To Be Funny, which will be back here at the Soho Theatre on Sunday, May the 13th, with regular host James O'Brien. Please thank Mr Alistair Barry, Mr Nick Revel, James Sherwood, Bridget Christie, Paul Mason and Andy Hamilton. Good night. <laughs>